0: So although we have entered a new year, some of the biggest news stories of 2020 have continued to dominate the news cycle. Today, I'm joined by my two fellow co-hosts, Rachel Duffy and Samuel Moore, um, to discuss coronavirus responses around the globe. Uh, which country responded the best? How is the UK finding itself in the mess that it is currently in? These are all questions which you guys will find out the answer to later on. Uh, before we start, however, I'd like to remind you to subscribe, like, comment, and share uh, Systems Reimagines videos if you do enjoy. And with that said, um, we'll have Rachel breaking down kind of the timeline, uh, the, the UK's coronavirus timeline for us, and uh, yeah, uh, giving the time to how we got into the situa- situation we're currently in.
1: Okay, so another grave milestone is being reached today. A further 413 deaths have been recorded, with 58,784 new confirmed COVID cases in the past 24 hours. So although to many of us these statistics are just coming to be more and more expected. They really are huge figures in our second, third wave that we're now currently in, and are leading to a huge strain on the NHS and onto schools and other public sector services, which I'm sure we'll get into further on. But to go for a brief recap of what we've seen so far with the UK, we saw the first confirmed cases in March. The government quickly abandoned a contagion um, strategy and also they abandoned a herd immunity strategy which was very controversial at the time when Johnson came out and said that that was perhaps one of the best ways to deal with the crisis but it's it's something that's kind of keeping recurring but I think everyone agrees that the abandoning of that policy especially has has been a good thing. In March we also saw the beginning of the national lockdown And then across March, April and May, there were just a lot of calls for personal protective equipment, PPE, to be more widely available within the NHS, within care homes and social services. There was also pressure on the government to provide an effective test track and trace system because that is what happened, especially in South Korea, but in a a lot of other countries. And that was one of the biggest ways other, other nations were able to tackle the virus. So during this initial lockdown that I'm sure everyone will remember for kind of being the days of baking banana bread and the TikTok iced coffee trends and things like that, the government's main strains were the providing of PPE and an effective test track and trace system. So we then got to the beginning of June where we saw a summer opening up period with travel doors and travel corridors to other European countries and encouraging summer holidays and vacations. With hindsight, this probably wasn't effective considering that we'd only kind of brought in travel restrictions and quarantine periods ourselves not much sooner other other countries not just in Europe but around the world were having stricter quarantine periods and that I'm sure among many other issues is something something we'll pick up on later. I think also one of the biggest issues with the summer period and that kind of slight return to more normality was the eat out help out scheme Uh, Rishi Sunak the Chancellor I was going to say then Chancellor he still is of course now the Chancellor but he had the idea to give I think it was £10 off per meal um, or certainly 50% of the bill up to £10. Now as good as this was at the time for people wanting to kind of go out and see their friends it not only had a weaker economic impact than had been expected with with small economic growth compared to the levels we should have seen pandemic or not giving away money for free basically it also and a lot more damagingly had a negative effect on people's health and was one of the um one of the things that resulted in the second wave so as we're kind of going to the end of summer this Eat out, help out scheme, for example, but also the return of schools and universities caused a second wave. We again saw immense pressure on the NHS. We're also starting to go into that winter period then in October, where there's more kind of common colds and flus and pneumonias with an ageing population. So it's a time of great strain anyway. This was only accelerated by the virus and the kind of normality that we saw over summer. So there were calls in October and November for a national circuit breaker lockdown, we saw some of the devolved nations doing similar policies, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and eventually Johnson bad pressure and over November we had a short snap circuit breaker lockdown. We then came out of this and just to summarise the past month, although I'm sure we're maybe even more aware of that fresher in our minds than, than some of the events in March. There was initially plans for Christmas bubbles where you could mix with three different households anywhere in the country for five days over the festive period. This was then cut short with parts of London in the southeast having to go into tier four which is the closure of all non-essential shops, leisure facilities and gyms and this was a result I'm sure we'll be aware of of the new strain which is much more infectious than the virus. This again was cut with people then being encouraged not to mix at all over Christmas or New Year and really to summarise Johnson is giving a speech tonight at 8pm, and I think most people are pretty much expecting him to announce another national lockdown with a very kind of prevalent stay-at-home message, very similar to what we saw in March, work at home if you can, and the possible closure of schools and universities again, which the government have said on many occasions is a real kind of last-ditch um, worst-case scenario event to, to close those educational institutions. But without further ado, I'll pass to my co-hosts and I'm sure we can kind of unravel that. I just wanted to provide a bit of a timeline and see see just from a UK perspective how we've, how we've dealt with the crisis.
0: That was great. <laughs> uh, no, no, really good um, summary there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's uh, also things like, um, uh, so just, I think one one thing which you forgot to mention, which probably is worth mentioning, was the Nightingales being built, um, which, um, yeah, I mean, huge project. I think it was 230 million pounds. But with that being said, uh, as we're now kind of facing this kind of larger wave, it seems, um, these are uh, not really... Uh, a, you know, adequately um, funded in terms of uh, staff being there and stuff like that. So another kind of taxpayer's um, money wasted. And I'm sure Sam will can kind of discuss a little bit more with the outsourcing of test and trace to Serco and that kind of failure um, with regards to leading to uh, a second wave um, and I guess a third wave in some sense. Um, You know, how we've just seen the government really lit a lot of uh, taxpayer money on fire uh, during the pandemic, and that's just an example of that. Uh, What else? There's another uh, interesting, um, interesting one. Uh, I believe the study was done that showed it was one in six people who got infected with coronavirus in the second wave. It was because of the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which is massive amounts of people. And also, you know, when he said the uh, former um, um, chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, I was like, I wonder how, like in how long that will actually become a reality. Because, um, yeah, I don't think he's done, didn't do too well, um, you know, in, in that time period in between the first and second wave with regards to economic growth uh, what else um, locking down too late with the second wave as well as you mentioned you know it's a uh, we got we got advised by sage to lock down or do a circuit breaker weeks before the government actually decided to do it and it seems like this is a recurring theme with boris johnson where you'll have government or uh, government advice or sorry uh, science advice essentially which is given to you and then he doesn't follow it he waits until the last moment then when it doesn't seem like there's no, any other option, he decides to do a lockdown. We've got huge amounts of deaths, huge amount of cases. And to be where we are right now, you know, 57,000 uh, cases on the 2nd of January, today we had 58,000 cases um, in one day. You know, We've had over 50,000 cases since the 29th of um, December. So in terms of cases, it's, it's massive. Uh, and in terms of deaths, we're at over 75,000 deaths now. Right. So these are numbers which are horrendous and which definitely could have been reduced, you know, if we've locked down earlier the first time, the second time. And I guess now the third time. Um, Yeah, I don't know if Sam has anything else to comment on it.
2: I mean, I think you both. But just like, you know, from the beginning of the outbreak and the COVID, the complete, you know, lack of proactiveness within the government, the government is always late to, you know, to make decisions and take proactive measures to address yeah, you know, the ever increasing cases, um, I guess, I think from the, you know, from the first wave, I can kind of understand, you know, the lack of action because, you know, it's a new disease. We weren't fully understanding the extent and how it works. So I think to some degree, you can, you can, you can give them some sympathy for that. But, you know, um, throughout when we initiated the first lockdown, I think it seemed like to me there was no introspection from the government and how you know we can attack this and improve this further you know once the we out of this lockdown and how you know how we can properly track and trace for example how we can you know mobilize to like just to make it more effective in dealing with this crisis but it seemed like no lessons were learned as you, and as you said the disastrous um policy of rishi sunak for iraq to help out, just basically giving money like subsidizing um more COVID cases, you know, which is crazy to think about nowadays. And I just said, uh, just a uh, complete rea- reactive um, policies. And like, there's no proactiveness, as I said. Um, so yeah, and also, as you mentioned, Benjamin, about the outsourcing, I mean, one common thing that I find with the countries who have dealt with this successfully is, you know, they understand the, the power of the state to mobilize and effectively create uh, change change, um, and effectively um, combat the crisis, you know. So, so yeah, I just think the outsourcing in the UK just created a complete decentralization and a complete mess, and it didn't allow um, the UK to actively address this um, this uh, um, issue effectively. And yeah, just a complete disaster, as you said, like outsourcing to circle. It just, yeah, it just wasn't effective. And and I, but I guess that's ingrained in how the UK, like the British society, is, you know. But yeah, um, just overall disaster. And um, I'm sure you might get into that now a bit about the schools and that how that's been dealt with recently, you know, the, the national education union recently put out a statement, um, you know, calling for a strike uh, and not going back to school. And, and I definitely support them, you know, because I read in the Sage report recently that from September we, we saw with the new introduction of the new strain, there was a 50-fold increase in from 11 to 16-year-olds in, you know, getting um, coronavirus cases. But yet we sat on this information for months, you know. And only until, you know, a week before December, when I think the, the school has made a reasonable request to maybe shut down a week earlier, you know, because Christmas is the time where there's a intergenerational mix, especially when bars plan to open it up, you know. So I think it makes sense to maybe give, give a week of, you know, as uh, minimized interaction as possible. But then once they go once they try to do that then the government sued them for for even trying this. So I just shows from like the beginning to to where we are now, it's just been a complete lack of um, you know, dealing with this properly, the lack of enforcement of the state and mobilising the state, disorganized outsourcing, um, the stupid eat out of the policy. Just like so much blunders, like so yeah, I mean as we'll see later on with the other countries. I think we have examples now that show that there are successful ways and there are commonalities within countries and how they've dealt with this crisis and it seems like the UK hasn't learned from that.
0: In a lot of ways that's what I find the most insane about the UK and its kind of responses um, over the last you know second wave and third wave is that after the first wave uh, went around globally, we had examples of what worked well. I mean, everyone spoke about South Korea, for example. At we have New Zealand, we know, has worked well. We know that Australia has worked well, like as we'll get to later on. Um, and so, yeah, th- that's what I mean. It's just kind of unbelievable how after you know all this time, we know there are some places which have, have performed better in terms of lives saved and economically than the UK has, yet they're still late um, to respond and things like that. But yeah, coming on more to unions and stuff like that, because this is kind of crazy how, you know, there's been a lot of a lot in the news recently, because Brexit deal obviously going through is a big um, kind of new story to discuss. And um, I maybe we'll speak about it a bit later. But I kind of feel like the media kind of apparatus in the UK used the Brexit deal as a form of um, a buffer from scrutiny against, you know, the increases in coronavirus cases. Um, but anyway, we'll get to that in a second. But no, now we're also uh, kind of hit with a lot of news with regards to unions. So, as Samuel said, the NEU, um, you know, informed 450,000 staff um, to not return to school because they said it wasn't safe. This is backed up by Sage reports. Um, you know, the, in a in one Sage report released 22nd of November, it says um, this. It is highly unlikely that measures with, with stringency and adherence in line with the measures in England in November, i.e. schools open, would be sufficient to maintain the R below 1 in the presence of the new variants. So uh, R below 1 obviously meaning, you know, the uh, pandemic um, would be shrinking and R above 1 meaning that it would still be growing. Um, you know, there's just a, there's other evidence pointing towards it, uh, which, I get, which I'll put up on screen uh, just so everyone can have a bit of a, a look at some of this, um, some other reports such as the Child Task and uh, Finnish Group, which is about, um, again, student-teacher transmission. And there's an important point to kind of debunk here in some ways because, you know, people often try to say that, you know, there's no transmission between um, s- children and also teachers. But if you look at actual actually the data behind it, it shows that, you know, the, the cases in teaching teachers, and also the cases within the uh, school children, um, like the population essentially, like uh, primary school, secondary school, they're like really highly. Correlation doesn't mean causation, but we can see when things like um, infection rates in teachers and students dip when they when kids go on half term break, for example. You know, we can see that's kind of some some form of evidence, right? That that it, you know there there is um, there is you know a correlation there, obviously. Um, but yeah, and uh, the union's demands as well have also not exactly been too, um, too crazy, right? Like all they're trying to say is that it's not safe to... Therefore, what we should do is we, we should prepare teachers to work remotely uh, and to volunteer if they you know, want to go in for, um, to take care of kids essentially who, uh, you know, whose parents are, or one of their parents is an essential worker, right? That doesn't seem too... You know, out of the ordinary or crazy to me. Quite sensible, in my opinion. And yeah, I mean, this is yeah. I, I think it's just again, um, pr- I support the unions. And also, you know, there's a important point to make here about the lack of support from labor, with the NEU and other you other teaching unions trying to come out here, because. If Keir Starmer and Labour wait until today, the day that schools go back to say, oh, we support unions, you know, they're not really doing too much, right? Keir Starmer could have had a, um, a leading front in trying to, you know, fight the Tories on this and be like, look, look at all this evidence, you know, we support unions. But in reality, I feel like that isn't really... Uh, right now with uh, with under Kirsten uh, for for big as opposed to you know supporting union and getting uh, more grassroots support right so again more in line with labor politics right now more than anything but yeah anyway I don't know if you guys anything have anything else to add with regards to unions
1: yeah I think on the point of starting like waiting until today to come out and support those it's certainly worth mentioning that although we're highlighting a pretty disastrous track record of the past nine months of COVID. It's not meant to be a kind of Tory bashing thing but those statistics do speak for themselves but equally Starmer and the Labour Party have not been an effective opposition. They have had every opportunity to really kind of hold the government to account and scrutinise them effectively with the ppe deliveries for example that we saw in kind of april may time with as you mentioned earlier benji millions of pounds of taxpayers money going on faulty equipment with eat out help out with a much too accelerated return to kind of economic growth above saving people's lives and they have time and again failed to do this. Starmer has had some redeeming moments, he's made some good addresses at Prime Minister's Question Time. Some of his lines do still really ring true with Boris's kind of dither and delay strategy. But overall, the Labour Party could have really capitalised on the pandemic and used it to their advantage, being on the side of workers and teachers and the unions and really just yeah highlighted the really, really dangerous and damaging narrative that the government have been peddling, but they they haven't done this as effectively as they should have. They are not leading in the polls to the extent that we would expect them to. If you look at other countries that have had similarly bad COVID responses, their opposition parties have really been able to capitalise on this. So I think while we're kind of highlighting some of the major shortcomings of Boris, of Sunak and other government ministers, it's by no means to say that the Labour Party would have done a much better job in government. Although it's it's hard to do a worse job, certainly. I think we do have to just mention here in the kind of balance of fairness that with hindsight, it's easy to go on these things. And it's very well saying Johnson, Johnson kind of critiquing Starmer, calling him Mr Hindsight. It's difficult not to use hindsight in a scenario like this, but also it's difficult not to kind of come out in support of unions as the leader of the Labour Party. So, yeah, I, I don't have much to add on the union front, just obviously that they they do have the teachers and not just teachers, but all school staff's best interest at heart. But whether the government will listen to them is is kind of it waits to be seen.
2: And going back to what you're saying, Rachel, I mean,
1: yeah, alongside, you know,
2: oftentimes being the insufficient opposition to the Tories, um, there's also just a lack of, um, you know, other, like an, uh, their own ideas, you know, to address this crisis, you know? It seems like more or less like Keir Starmer just saying, just refusing to, um, you know, take, take the line of what Boris Johnson's saying, but he's still not offering his own ideas. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that's a big mistake on him. And that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, they haven't seen a bump in the, in their ratings um, over these past few months, or at least not as much as they thought it would be, you know? So, yeah, I just, I agree with you. I think there is a definitely, the opposition hasn't been as good as it could be. And there's been a complete lack of imagination um, from the Labour uh, Party. And yeah, and I just hopefully, yeah, I mean, still to be seen, you know, how, you know i mean this this is for another time but also i wonder how you know once this crisis is more or less you know calmed down hows hows starmer plan planning to you know separate himself and you know express his own ideas for the labor party and his vision because we haven't seen much of that now so yeah i mean that's a discussion for another time but yeah definitely a, uh, it's quite a, been a quite a poor opposition i think up until now
0: no yeah definitely um so should we get into the compare and contrast, I guess, or kind of looking at other countries' responses, obviously we've just gone over the UK's response. You know, if you guys want to add anything else, then, you know, speak up. Um, But if not, then we can, you know, move on. So I believe Samuel's going to start us off with China, where the virus emerged, and then um, go to Vietnam. Then we're going to look a little bit at the Pacific, and then Samuel's going to end us off with Cuba.
2: Wait Rachel, I thought that were you weren't you doing China? I thought you were gonna do China. Yeah.
0: Oh, sorry, my bad. Rachel, then.
2: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Rachel, I think you might be on mute. <laughs> yes,
1: I was. Um, so going going to China, where the virus originated from. The it's, it's certainly divisive. Everyone will have an opinion on how they think China has handled the pandemic or where they think the pandemic came from in China. At the minute, the narrative is that it was from a wet market, which is, is a very plausible explanation seen as animal agriculture and society's kind of meat consumption it has a positive correlation with these viruses and pandemics. But we won't get on to too many of the conspiracy theories, but I'm sure I'm sure people will have heard of them and you can easily find them. So China, it originated in Wuhan, the province of Wuhan, and they had an immediate, incredibly strict lockdown where people were not able to go on the street. It was a work from home kind of three line whip grocery stores, we saw this wide, wide mask wearing, just it was dealt with in a very, very strong manner, but a lot of people a lot of right-wing commentators, especially, critique that it was kind of a classic socialist country. You could never do that in the West. You could never shut down a whole region, never mind a whole country, and kind of strip people of these basic human rights of freedom and things. And this was a prevailing narrative that we saw. Johnson himself said that like a similar thing could just never be seen in the UK. Obviously, foreshadowing what what did come. So with China's effective locking down and the sanitization of streets and things on an evening and just this really strong message of how to kill the virus, you know, hand washing, mask wearing, not going out, it dealt with it well. And the virus didn't actually spread too much around China. There were, of course, reported cases in the big cities, as anyone would expect there to be. But it was largely contained within Wuhan. And over time, it, the economy has gone back to more of a kind of normal stretch. And I think famously, even though pretty pretty recent history would show that New Year's Eve celebrations in Wuhan, there was no social distancing, there were huge crowds. And I think for some that left a bit of a sour taste that this is where it's originated from. But then equally, it does just show that they were effective on the whole. There were issues, the kind of whistleblower doctor that first reported on it, the Chinese court have actually come out and issued a public apology for his treatment. And there were a lot of similar examples of this that I think people are quite keen to capitalise on. But overall, you can't can't argue too much with kind of what's, what's happened there with the effective test and trace systems, with a kind of uniformly positive response by citizens to this and yeah it will be interesting I'm sure people have their opinions even just on whether the kind of deaths and cases reported are actually true even because a lot of people are saying that the place that it originated when no one knew what the virus was like it's unbelievable that there were just 5,000 deaths but it certainly would be difficult to kind of have like a huge wide scale cover up and again we spoke about the nightingales and their building in the uk china did something very similar they not only had hospitals for those most vulnerable and really really struggling with the effects of covid kind of needing ventilation and things that they had a kind of middle ground hospital area where people who were infectious and maybe couldn't necessarily effectively self-isolate in their homes without family members also getting the disease and spreading it in the workplace or at school, where those people were allowed to go and kind of return to normality. So it was a halfway house. And I think that that was quite effective. And it's not something necessarily that's been spoken about a lot. So overall, China's handled it well, I would I would say.
0: So I just want to point out, I think China's the only country in the G20 to have their economy grow this year our, our last year, I guess, 2020. I think it grew by 1.5% or maybe it was 1.2%. But regardless, like much better than what we've seen in the UK, for example. So yeah, um, I have no, no, nothing uh, much, you know, to add to that. Apart from, yeah, China is obviously quite a difficult one because, you know, there's a the whole aspect of secrecy and things like that. But, you know, as as you said, I think it would be quite difficult to really cover up so many deaths if it was like that much more, for example. And I, you know, I'm just anecdotally for example um you know my cousin um shanghai and it's like from what i can see at least on his social media and stuff like that they're not in any form of lockdown for example like they can pretty much live life normally and you know as rachel was saying with the in wuhan for example they had those huge new year celebration and things like that so yeah you know overall i mean you can't really argue that their life's kind of back to normal so you know good on them i guess
2: Exactly. I mean. I think to like to other you know like all the people in the West especially like who like the freedom lovers you know I don't think they're thinking that when in New Year's Eve when they were having the time of their life there in China and we're just stuck at home you know not doing anything. I mean that that is not to say that you know obviously there is critique of the the Chinese government and its repression, especially when it comes to whistleblowers etc. But still I mean yeah as as you both said it's hard to hard to deny their success in, you know, effectively fight fighting this disease. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's not much, mu- not much to add. Not, sorry, not much else to add. Um, I mean, I can go on to Vietnam now because I think that's also how they dealt with it is very similar case to um, to China. And I think a lot of like such as we're not going to talk about South Korea, but they also another country, for example, who dealt with it in similar ways, you know, and it's, just, it's just been a common theme within um uh within east asia
0: also south korea let me just add um really good test and trace system for example uh that like going back to the uk a little bit but yeah sorry about
2: yeah no yeah exactly it's a very you know they're actually one of the first models i think that truly stood out and and people were applauding you know but as we've seen over the past few months also you know china as we said vietnam taiwan etc they've also been very effective in dealing with this crisis but yeah i wanted to focus on Vietnam because because you know it's a country of over 95 million people and as of right now they've only had 90 them I mean, 35 deaths sorry 35 deaths out of 95 million which is crazy and just shows you know how effective they've been and I think overall there's been um over 1400 cases only so yeah just they boast a very good record and it just shows that they've been very successful and you know I think a lot of this trucks down to, you know, similar stuff to China, but it's just but proactive measures on all fronts, you know, and unity within the government for deciding what actions to take. I think in this case, like, like a top-down socialist system, I mean, it does show that, I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but it does show that it has been successful in fighting, um, uh, COVID, you know? Um, so yeah, I just want to quickly go through a bit of a timeline show short timeline with Vietnam and how they've dealt with it. So, you know, even before the first coronavirus case was recorded in the country, um, the government did do a risk assessment assessment in early January. And, um, you know, so yeah, and then like a week late, week before um, it was officially declared a public health emergency of international concern. um, They did close, uh, they already, you know, shut down the borders um, within China because, you know, they share a border with China. So before that, before it was even declared an emergency or a crisis, they shut down the borders, and visitors' um, temperatures were, were checked along the border. And I mean, if they, if someone like, if for example, if someone had to come in for emergency, they were checked. And also, um, yeah. So they were also signalled out and isolated. So that just showed, like you know, dealing with especially in China, because you know, only you know only came around to the rest of the world a bit later on. So even before then, they were effective in dealing with the border with China. Um, they received their first COVID-19 case on the January 23rd. And the day after they, they, yeah, they suspended all flights from Wuhan, despite the World Health Organization saying there was no need for widespread travel bans of it as of yet. So as I said before, it's very effective in doing that. Um, and um, yeah, and then on February 1st, um, they, just, they um, ordered more stricter border controls in general and visa restrictions um so yeah um and then you know they also dealt with this a lot about locality lockdowns and just having effective tracing systems within the neighborhood um but yeah it was more or less kept to um it's kept controlled um but by march um this cases started popping up with um nationals from that came from various countries so by march 17th um they stopped issuing visas and march 21st they closed their borders from um not only from china from all around the world um yeah and only they only allowed um repatriation flights back to vietnam and then they had to you know obviously like with china that's the isolated in, in in like separately in the, in the governmental um uh, uh isolation area so that was also effective and that shows like in general, like. Uh, the, those these these types of isolation um, proved to be more effective than home isolations because you know usually you share um you share uh, you know your home with other people and that creates a more likelihood to spread you know so um yeah they they implemented that as well but eventually you know they had to create a lockdown because you know the more and more cases started to pop up so they implemented their first lockdown on April 1st and it was a 15day lockdown and you know um, after the fifteen day lockdown, there's still some regions that were had to lockdown extend their lockdown because of new cases. So, um, but by April twenty third, the the economy was open and but masks were mandatory. And from there, like they enjoyed a lot of, you know, three months of COVID free. They had no COVID cases and you know, that's an incredible feat. That's something that we never saw within Europe, you know. So, um, yeah, it just shows that effectiveness and then but later on, um, it was around July. There was, you know, there was more cases. There's uh, 500 cases uh, recorded in 14 cities and provinces. But ultimately, the main area of, of of the outbreak was the Da Nang region. And actually, all the cases from the cities, from uh, v- multiple cities across the country, were linked to. You could be traced back to the Da Nang region. So from from the effective track and trace system, they were able to find the origin and trace it back to the city and from there, they implemented a local lockdown, so no one was allowed to leave that region. Um, you know, uh, only, you can only come over for emergencies, as with other countries. And they also used like, a pool sampling, which was uh, able to test five or six people together like so a household could be tested. And the World Health Organization actually reported that a third of the city's households were tested in that region within seven days from September 3rd to the 10th um so yeah i mean so from that outbreak in july they effectively you know they isolated it they traced it back to its origins and kind of they kind of halted its uh, spread um very quickly you know and then go back there in late november so it's pretty recent now there was um a remain someone came back from romania who broke the lockdown lockdown rules and they spread um the infection and they actually facing potential jail sentences, and I think that you can kind of trace that back to the criticisms of, of China. But yeah, it uh, just shows how strict they are in enforcing it. So in response to that, uh, the selective commercial flights were stopped, and this like, and as I said, uh, along with the effective tracing system, there's no been there's been no local transmission as for a month from first of December. So it just shows. Um, it just shows, you know, the effectiveness of, um, of how they dealt with it, you know? And um, apparently they say, despite having a state-owned me- uh, media, and it's true that there is a, there's a lack of freedom of press, but for this, in this matter particularly, they really communicated and wanted really a freedom of information for COVID-related matters, you know? So for example, one of the people within the government, the party, the Communist Party of Vietnam, he contracted the virus on a trip to the UK. And he, you know, they wanted to, um, in response to that, they also, they published his whereabouts publicly so the whole country could see it. And just to give an example that, you know, even the people within the party are, you know, they follow follow following procedures. And you can compare that to like Dominic Cummins here in the UK, which is, you know, he got basically got, um, you know, they let him off just for, you know, for breaking lockdown rules. So it just shows a bit of a difference, you know, in guessing how society works. Yeah, and just to sum it up, I know it's been a bit of a, uh, you know, it's a long-winded, uh, uh, you know, description, but, you know, th- these strict measures and like you, some people call it over-cautious measures have greatly benefited them economically, you know. For example, um, according to the IMF, Vietnam is expected to grow the most in the world by 2.4%, 2.4%, so yeah, even ahead of China. So this shows, you know, as, you know, same with New Zealand, as you said, with China, it shows that effective lockdowns and decisive proactive action does have you know economic benefits and has shown that these countries are going to perform the best by the end of the year so yeah i mean it's just an interesting example and yeah it's similar to china just there's a different like mentality i think uh, within the population and also, also having to do with stars for example i think it's also changed the mindset of people and this resulted into an effective management of you know covid
0: yeah definitely no no yeah i think definitely these um kind of other experiences with these other viruses you know in in some of these southeast asian countries has really helped them prepare for things like coronavirus um but yeah anyway so oh rachel do you have anything to add to that or not really
1: i'm gonna add kind of on the point of a different mentality like it's similar to what was seen in Vietnam with that really effective test and trace system, even like up to the uppermost echelons in the kind of party and the government. South Korea, the people in interviews and things, like more Western journalists, a UK journalist from Sky News went over and said like, okay, so you're willing to give up like credit card statements, bank statements, kind of like access to your phone location and things to enable this test and trace system to work but where i come from like my country would never be okay with like sacrificing such freedoms and the interviewee was really quite adamant that there was no like distinct cultural kind of um dissimilarity between the two it wasn't that Uh, people from the UK, you know, could just sacrifice these freedoms, um, or they couldn't sacrifice these freedoms, whereas people from South Korea, Vietnam, and so forth, and so on could, it was just that they were willing to pay that price for a return to normal, for the kind of effective tackling of such a deadly disease. So I think it's really interesting, Samuel, what you were saying about that mentality, and it will come in time and time again in in kind of comparison to, to some of those more Western nations who it just wasn't even on the agenda to have a test and trace system like that. You know, giving our details when we go into bars and restaurants, like, is seen as enough, and it, it really isn't.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Okay, so let's move on to uh, Australia, I guess. So um, if you are at home, sitting, listening to this, wondering how can this actually work, you know, in a more capitalist country, although I'd like to argue with you that uh, Vietnam and um, China are actually properly socialist. Uh, but anyway, so in somewhere like Australia, for example, you know, in the news, you would have seen that Australia went through really intense lockdown periods. Melbourne, obvious example, 112-day lockdown, right? Massive. Um, and, you know, not only did, you know, some of the states lockdowns and things like that, but the borders So uh, coming into Australia, right, similar to, you know, Vietnam, China, lockdown as well, but also kind of going in between states, you had to lock down as well. And so, and so um, yeah, basically, uh, you know, the prime minister, in terms of like how the prime minister actually dealt with it... Um, they formed a national cabinet with state leaders, uh, from all parties. And, you know, it was a really bipartisan approach. They listened to the science and it not only resulted in only 28,000 cases, um, kind of recorded in the pandemic, but also only 900 deaths. Um, and in addition to this, right, you have a, a additional kind of government trust. So at the start of the pandemic, since, since the start of the pandemic, government trust has, you know, doubled. And this is coming from also a conservative government. So, um, so, yeah, and I also think it's important to look at Australia's, uh, you know, economic performance in when discussing this because you hear a lot on the news and I guess kind of in other, um, you know, media outlets that you have to have a trade-off, right, between the economy and saving people's lives. And I guess as you've shown already, you know, through discussing this, that's not really true. Um, and Australia is another example of this. So they they didn't, you know, grow like Vietnam has or how China has. But in terms of, you know, they, in terms of like their actual kind of economic impact, has definitely been uh, not as intense as you would see in Europe. So, you know, Australia did go into their first recession due to these uh, kind of restrictions and stuff, um, the first time in almost three decades. However, they are accelerating out of it. In September, um, in September quarter, the economy grew by three point three percent, which was much better than the predicted two point six percent, um you know quarter growth and also the contraction in economy at the end 2020 was predicted to be 4.4 percent however it was only kind of 3.8 towards the end um you can compare this to the uk you know the economy shrunk uh 11.2 percent and france shrunk nine percent by the end of 2020 right so you know not a real in-depth economic analysis but it shows you know you know not as not as intense right as we see u k france et cetera and and economists you know around the world are linking this you know performance in the economy to you know controlling the virus and stuff like that so yeah, um you know just more kind of similarities as you guys have highlighted, things like shutting down borders uh things like um uh, test and tracing things like uh, things like stopping kind of you know counties or like states travel between each other um to stop the spread and things like that so uh and at the end of the day as well having a better economic performance
2: i mean i think um i think this like australia and new zealand are you know is you know for because i mean as i said before i mean obviously the culture does play a bit of a role in in your willingness to, to 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 you know look at the community you know as opposed to the individual but i think australia and new zealand kind of blow that out the water a bit because, I mean, culturally, you can say like Australia, especially similar to, to how the UK, like the Commonwealth, you know, it's a bit similar in that sense. And yet, you know, with common sense measures, as we've seen, cause they've done there is some similar stuff to, um, to Vietnam and China as well. And how the, you know, to, or more policies to implement to, to, to address it. Maybe it's not everything down to a T, but there are commonalities with those two, with these countries, you know, and, this has shown that it's been effective in dealing with the crisis in their country, you know. So, you know, as we said before, there is this at this at this stage, there's various examples that we can look to 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 help the UK. And um, yeah, we're just not listening. <laughs> and um, so yeah, I think yeah, these these two countries provide a good example for that.
1: I agree. I think. In terms of how much you will say about New Zealand, it's certainly been heralded as like one of the major, major success stories, along with Australia. Obviously, it's worth mentioning that the geographic makeup of New Zealand, so compared to the UK, is sizable. You know, New Zealand's population is minute in comparison to its geography and to the population of the uk and other other countries that maybe haven't been seen to handle it as well but that having been said the policies that they enacted were replicated on countries with big populations bigger than the uk and so it's kind of with a pinch of salt that you need to talk about talk about their geographical and um kind of demographic differences but it is of course worth mentioning i think
0: definitely yeah definitely worth mentioning sorry i didn't do that for uh, uh australia um but yeah so sad you want to finish us off with uh cuba i guess because they definitely have an interesting uh approach to it
2: yeah you know um i wanted to specifically talk about cuba because i think it's interesting to see how they dealt with it because they ultimately they they have have a set of circumstances which most con- with that most countries don't have to, you know, face. And um, but through, you know, I just want to talk about like how, you know, how they how creative they have been in in in, uh, in you know finding the solutions to these problems and how you know, you know the how the the revolution and how Fidel Castro how he set the foundations to to address uh, this crisis. You know, so um, yeah, I want to start off with. You know, the Cuban healthcare model is very different in the fact that it's super localized. And um, it's a prevention-based model because, as you know, it's a country with limited resources, with U.S. sanctions that have lasted 60 years. So they need to be more about prevention than, you know, reaction. Um, so um, in Cuba, there's something called um, family doctors and nurses. And um, these are uh, doctors that are based within the communities of around, you know, could be like around 800 people for example so these are doctors that look over looked after this particular neighborhoods um and for the coronavirus case in general so them the family doctors and nurses along with medical students and local committees such as the committee of the defense of the revolution or combatants of the revolution who are local organizations that you know help neighborhood problems and address certain neighborhood issues they all teamed up and they kind of you know they went, they went around and actively screened all the homes within the neighborhood for cases of COVID-19. So that involves testing and antibody testing. So yeah, they this, so there's a mass mobilization because they didn't have high tech, you know. So they really used manpower, and this kind of house because you know they have the highest doctor-to-patient ratio in the world. So you know, along with a lot of students who are trained in this, so they were able to to go door door by door in the neighborhoods. And um, yeah, this this kind of you know it's helped the tracing and isolation process that they undertook. So yeah, I thought that was just very interesting, like how um, these localized um, you know uh, neighborhoods. Um, I mean, all of them. Were, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a top-down approach in the sense that you know the the government did um, provide um, the you know the process that needs to be done. But yeah, it's it's just very done much and very much on a local level, you know. So. I thought that was interesting and um, yeah, and um, similar to uh, the cases that we discussed before, it was an institi- to institutional based isolation. So, and anybody who tested positive is hospitalized and, um, you know, they people who are suspected of carrying the virus were put into state-run isolation centers for two weeks into a negative. Um, so yeah, um, this is also like, like currently this has been adapted slightly because they have open borders due to their success. And tourism is, you know, their main source of income. So they needed to open it up a bit. So when you arrive to Cuba as a tourist, you have to take a PCR. You have to first um, do a PCR test um, 72 hours before you arrive. And you have to hand that in. And then once you arrive there, you have to take PCR test as soon as you land in the country. And then, um, you know, um, and from there you receive it, I think, 48 hours. And then additionally, there is a government tax for book like based on bookings to travel there. So, I mean, despite opening up a bit, they are trying to decrease the prevention, you know? So I thought that was interesting, you know? Um, and then I also want to talk about, you know, just the effect that the blockade has on Cuba and how they deal with it and just to show how brutal blockades are for the average person, you know? Um, so, I mean, luckily, you know, due to this, you know, very localized, um, family you know you know this localized um, neighborhood um mobilization they haven't overburdened the hospitals but still regardless they have prepared for the worst case scenario um so yeah um they have had difficulties though um especially when it comes to ordering and fixing machines such as ventilators because actually their main source of ventilators which is in Sweden was ultimately acquired by a US company and this, you know, this led to um, to them not being able to order any more uh, v- ventilation machines. So it just has created a whole complication and the whole, you know, the whole plan had to be restructured just because of acquisition, you know, it just shows how brutal it can be. Um, so this led them to be more creative, you know, so for example, let do crowd do crowdfunding to collect phones so that they, they can, so that they can use the parts of the phones to, you know, to to create a ventilation machine along with that they also did a crowdfunding for buying spare parts so that they could buy spare parts to you know to um to create ventilators and how they created the ventilators was through open source design so in their case in particular they use open source designs from mit and ucl to um to help create their own uh, ventilators so yeah they really had to be creative and you know just it just creates so much more complications for them but it's pretty incredible how they did it but i'm also want to add that that you know they had they dealt with a lot of crises specifically the dengue crisis that happened in the early 80s and um from that crisis um uh, cuba and fidel castro they set up the biological front and this is a collaboration between government academic sectors and research institutions and was designed to coordinate Um, to the needs and interests of various sections of the government and also to form policy-making body that's capable of, you know, working towards a common cause between all all these institutions and implement, you know, biotechnology properly. So this uh, biological front was also important in the research and development and, you know, to to tackle uh, the COVID crisis within Cuba. So, yeah, I mean, just to close up, I want to show you a video of. I think the most interesting part is the um, community-based medical uh, layout that they have. So as you can see, the video that I'll show you now, um, you can just have an idea of how it works. So as you can see from the video you just watched, um, yeah, even like you can see the two students there, they went out, they were knocking on homes just to make sure that everyone was, you know, correct, and also they make it, making sure to test them and make sure that they are right. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just an exemplary, exemplary um, uh, way of dealing with this uh, crisis in a country that so um, has such little resources and under economic blockade. I mean, you can say what you want about. I mean, there is valid criticism, obviously, of the Cuban government. It's not a perfect uh, government, but um. I think even the most harshest critics can say that the how they how they formed their healthcare system and how they've dealt with this crisis is uh, was I mean very effective and an example of how you know you don't need the high the biggest and most expensive technology to deal with this crisis. So I just, I just thought it was an interesting um, case study.
0: Um, I was going to say, Rachel, I feel like skipped out on um, New Zealand. So uh, if you want to add anything there with regards to female leadership and stuff like that, then please be my guest. I completely forgot about it. I thought after Australia, you know, the Pacific is done, but it really isn't.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um... New Zealand, it kind of ties in with this prevalent theme of female leaders making a real difference during the pandemic and the kind of gender parity within them, just having a more effective response to, to the pandemic. So if you look at Anna Solberg, Sanna Marin, Katrin Jacobs, Meta Mette, Friedrichs, who are all prime ministers of Norway, Finland, Iceland and Denmark, the most successful handling of coronavirus can be seen in these countries, as opposed to their male-led neighbours, if you look to Sweden, the UK, Ireland. Now, obviously, it's a big argument to make that gender is the only thing that would kind of change a leadership and a response to the pandemic, when I think we've made it quite clear it's dependent on a lot of other variables, whether that's kind of population, demographics or geography, or even just the, the finances and wealth that is available in that country. But I think the examples of some of those European leaders, obviously Angela Merkel with Germany is another key example, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. Scotland have seen high death tolls, but she has always been one step ahead in terms of the lockdowns, even just compared to Johnson, kind of south of the border. So this this really is encapsulated by Jacinda Ardern and the New Zealand Covid response this kind of humility that has been seen the economic reliefs and um, just kind of furlough schemes and things has been incredibly effective with just one or two confirmed cases in major cities I think one of the most effective ways has been the fact that they have been immediately locked down. And of course, this has been replicated with countries with male leadership. It's not hugely a gender issue, but I think it would be folly not to at least recognise it and kind of comment on some of some of the areas. Because the record kind of doesn't lie, just as we were saying with the UK, as much as you can say the government have done the best that they can and you know it's all very well to remark with hindsight but overall the deaths and cases don't lie i think that's similarly apparent for the countries with female leaders and their pandemic responses i don't think you can call it kind of just a coincidence so New Zealand has been heralded as the key example and Jacinda Ardern I think that's certainly like um, a very popular cult of personality around her leadership so I would encourage people to look at other maybe European countries also with female leaders and the kind of similarities in their responses but yeah overall it's, it's certainly a good point for women in leadership positions kind of always needing to prove themselves this i think we can certainly take as a victory for those prime ministers
0: it's also interesting to like see the idea of you know the strong man leadership and all this kind of stuff decay away uh, when it comes to this you know pandemic and it's nice to obviously see you know um some more of the woman leaders really step up to the plate um much better than a lot of their kind of male um Compatriots, or whatever you want to call it, have you know, so yeah, definitely, definitely a positive there. So, I think we're gonna round out the show by looking over some of the uh, vaccine distribution um, strategies and stuff like that. Uh, You know, Rachel just mentioned kind of New Zealand, so I guess we'll start there. Um, You know, from what I've seen in research, New Zealand and Australia are doing a joint approach with her. Within the their own region, the the Pacific region, targeting um, places like Cook Islands and the and Samoa. Uh, so also, you know, on the more economics um, side, it makes sense that they're doing these these kind of vaccine distributions to surrounding countries because obviously, places like Australia, places like New Zealand, they benefit a lot from tourism. So as long as those i'm sorry, as soon as these kind of countries surrounding them can get high levels of vaccinations, you know, then they can also, you know, benefit from that, if that tourism industry once more. Um, and also with regards, obviously, their, you know, to their own countries, they're kind of rolling out a uh, vaccine, you know, vaccine distribution, I believe, in Australia, starting in March, and I, I believe will probably be something similar for New Zealand. So yeah, just just, you know, just to mention it, because, you know, we want to have some light at the end of the tunnel with all this Coronavirus shebang. So uh, yeah, g- good to just mention at least. Samuel, do you have um, anything, you know, to add for uh, some of the other countries or um, Rachel as well?
2: I mean, no, not much else to add. Um, yeah, as you said, I think it's great that, you know, New Zealand are, they have a, you know, a good approach to this vaccine distribution, you know, looking after their neighboring countries in the, you know, Pacific. But yeah, I think, I mean, overall, globally, as like the like the dynamics of vaccine distribution, I think in some ways it doesn't mirror um you know the current you know fight i can say for you know global p- uh, power um so I, I we can look at like the major countries like for example um i mean um i can't out as a side note before i think the uk recently struck a deal with india so, so that india can produce the oxford and AstraZeneca vaccine um there and in turn they can also uh, india can distribute those uh vaccines themselves to developing countries. So so I want to be fair to the UK that they are, you know, there is a, uh, There is an effort to, you know, for more equal distribution on their part, at least. But I mean, looking at a country like the US, for example, um, there's been a very, you know, there's, there's been a lot of articles actually recently about called vaccine apartheid and how, you know, there's been such a, um unfair distribution of the vaccine um, in the global north compared to the global south. And um, yeah, you can even see like I think there's the um, we can pull up a chart a chart now that um, shows that it's estimated that like Africa, for example, most countries in Africa will only receive it in three or four years' time, you know. Um, And uh, this just shows, you know, like I thought. I mean, on the I mean, just initially, I think it doesn't make much sense, you know, because to to effectively combat COVID, I think you need a global response. You need countries around the world to, you know, be able to have the vaccine. So it limits the spread in the future. So that's, I think that's just, it's obvious. And it just shows, I mean, yeah, I think it just shows like a lack of, you know, global global coordination in distributing this. Um, But I will say that, you know, for example, China, for example, they've developed their own vaccine and they're gonna be part of this uh, organization called the COVAX facility which is the global alliance of 189 countries and it's kind of moving towards equal vaccine distribution. So I think obviously, I mean, th- they have strategic, uh, implications there and distributing for them themselves, but be interesting to see, you know, the, you know, the dynamics, if for example, China, for, um, if they are more, um, you know, willing to distribute their vaccines to the global South or if Russia is distributing the Sputnik uh, vaccine to, um, to other places as well so um yeah i mean i think it's still to be seen but there's definitely a dynamic where the u.s especially is you know prioritizing vaccines for themselves and western allies and uh, creating a kind of a gulf between global south and global north countries but there are countries like um china and russia strategically or not they are i guess you know working with countries that are have less of a Less income to to to, to buy uh, the the Pfizer or Moderna one. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, yeah, what are you guys thoughts on
0: it? Yeah. yeah, I mean on my side. Oh, Rachel, go for it. No,
1: no, no tiny star.
0: All right. No. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think we it's important to have a lot of these you know conversations around vaccine distribution and manufacturing patents as well. For example, you know. Um,
2: I was gonna say I think it could be a good one to like discuss more in more detail in another episode, for example, about the patent. yeah. I mean,
0: just a brief note on patents, like things like the Moderna vaccine, almost I think I think it was almost eighty percent funded by government or even more than that. So you know, and then it's Moderna, although they they have you know opened up uh, the patent, so I guess they're not really making money from it. Um, the COVID you know vaccine itself right now. The technology which has, you know, gone into a lot of this government funded research and development, something which they will benefit off in the future. Right. And it's not just Moderna. You know, there's multiple other vaccines which have received tons and tons of government funding, which are then eventually going to have going to make a lot of profit off this. And it's a mix of, you know, I, in my view, I guess, more greedy kind of uh, corporations in some sense and also really bad government policy right if government's funding 50 percent of this r d research for example and it, and it's going to be really useful in going into you know uh, some form of uh, patent to be made like to make loads of money off of in the future then you know this should be something which a government the government should you know have a certain percentage of or or something that they get a you know should get entitled they should be entitled to a certain percentage of the profits right so i mean that's just how i would see it in my view And uh, in in terms of, you know, actual vaccine distribution, I think it's also really interesting how you see, um, you know, uh, as you've mentioned, China, Russia, you have New Zealand, you know, stepping up to the plate really um, and uh, trying to distribute this to kind of other countries and things like that. Um, And, you know, yeah, I I think sometimes this whole vaccine distribution thing brings out the, the worst in the world. Like we see how everyone just, it's like, you know, the idea of it's me, me, me the whole time, like have to get it for my population at this time. We don't really take a step back and um, focus on, you know, other people and um, kind of their conditions. And also, you know, I can understand how you know a country wants to vaccinate its populations first, right? Sure, yeah. but you can also, you know, set aside some of it or buy a certain amount of vaccines to give abroad, like we see in New Zealand, for example.
2: Yeah, it just doesn't make much sense, I think, to to kind of, to you know not try distribute it as widely as possible because you know we do live in a globalized economy and. If there's disruptions within the supply chain, within the global south, for example, that's going to ultimately affect the global north and, you know, their economic situation. So I think it doesn't make much sense just to focus on yourself because, yeah, in, in the reality we live in, it does, like, it's ultimately could be useless, you know. So, so, yeah, I mean, as you said, it brings out the worst in people.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, as you are saying, kind of in such a globalised world and kind of global economy, it's only going to have a kind of chain reaction, like a knock-on effect from one nation to another if, if the vaccine isn't widely available or different, different strands and different types. But I think it's certainly interesting as well, that the kind of China and Russia narrative in terms of their own motivations for really making that as widely available there's certainly political capital to be had from it there was even just more political capital with kind of the uk being one of the first to roll out the vaccine back in december but yeah i think certainly to end on a a brighter note it's it's certainly a really really good thing that the vaccine is kind of coming more widely available and hopefully with time we'll we'll see a kind of mass vaccination of the world's population but in the meantime as each country maybe does their own response even just from a regional perspective I think that may be the way forward for a lot of places like if you look at those Pacific regions and so on and so forth like a European Union-wide kind of response then I think that may in practice be the most principal even though be the most practical sorry whereas in principle it would be nice if there was this nationwide road art
2: yeah exactly i agree with you and um yeah kind of this kind of like draws par like the attitudes towards china and, and russia like it kind of draws parallels to me but like the skepticism around you know soviet union helping liberation movements in africa for example in the in the 20th century and. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this to be said, like everyone has this, their own strategic, um, you know, plan in distribution. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a double standard with, when it comes to countries like Russia and China, just assuming the worst, you know, and while completely m- overlooking how we distribute in the, the vaccine, you know. So, So, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting dynamics for sure
0: definitely and so i mean i have nothing else to add really do you guys anything else to add no yes no okay well it seems like we've reached the end of systems reimagined episode one um again you know as i said at the beginning of the episode if you enjoyed hearing our views perspectives things like that you know like subscribe share helps us grow and things like that and we'll see you guys all very soon and in the
2: link in the, in the sorry in the link in nope, the bio no you have you have the our social media handles where you can follow and yeah
0: oh uh, yes how the, could i forget i forgot yeah how could i forget to mention the bio social media accounts go go Rachel to
1: add, in terms of we really appreciate like we've had some followers right from the beginning. We've um kind of privated a few of our earlier videos, and this is going to be the first one of kind of the official launch, but we really appreciate we've had some like really consistent viewers over, over the past few months, That's October. Um, so whether you're kind of an old viewer or a new viewer, we really appreciate um the watch and hopefully the subscription too.
0: Yes, absolute legends. Okay, we'll see you guys all very soon. I've been Benji, joined by Rachel Samuel. See you all soon. Bye-bye.